as of today, in her words, enters its fifth year. Five years. It was four years ago this week that we first went up on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, on the interwebs. And look at that. We've repeated only a handful of episodes. We've had an episode every week, all during COVID, without missing a single one. That's 200-plus individual fascinating women from coast to coast sharing their stories. I've recorded in Santa Monica, in Harlem, in Tampa, Florida, all kinds of places. Recorded outdoor at picnic tables, at people's back porches, Las Vegas, Phoenix, Austin, Texas, on the 23rd floor of an apartment building, looking up the river where the bats fly out from under the bridges. It's been a blast. We just have to stop and say, wow. Um, I want to thank you, everybody who's supported me over this time. And I really want to say thank you to the guy who's recording this, Brian Baltashevitz at the Queen City Podcast Network. As we launch a new podcast in the new year, 2024, which we're calling CLT First, CLT1ST. It's news for people who hate news. And I hope you like it. This week, Peg Rorbachek. I knew of her first ex-husband. I really know and like her second ex-husband. And we talk about that just a little bit. And she's got a new book out. And it's really well written. It's a memoir. I, I really wish I were the writer she is. She's a consummate practitioner of the craft. Peg Robercheck. I have no need to be married again. I have no interest in being married again. I have no desire to prove one more time that I am ill-equipped to be in a relationship. This is In Her Words a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, hi there, ho there, and welcome to In Her Words, the podcast going into the fifth year. Yes, sir. This week, Peg Robercheck, who was recommended to me, and then all of a sudden I put two and two together and realized she's married to my, was married to my buddy, Mike Perkey. And they became just poster children for how wonderful a divorce can be and how people can remain just really great friends. She's a good person and an even better writer. And she's got a new book out, which she alludes to. Peg Robercheck. Where were you born? I was born in Oneonta, Alabama, but I grew up in Birmingham. Did you grow up in the city or in the burbs? In the city, in the city, um, which was different in those days. Uh, I mean, the suburbs were, um, the suburbs were far away at that time. Um, but I lived in I lived on the wrong side of the tracks, in um, 
uh, just not a short bus ride from Center City of Birmingham. Um, but I grew up on the wrong side of the tracks and... What made it the wrong side? It, you know, not having not a lot of money, having not a lot of education. Um, in Birmingham, Alabama in those days, it meant not being too far from people who were also a different color. It was just not the place to live. Did you grow up in the 70s, 60s? I was born in 1952. So I grew up in the 50s and the 60s. Do you remember um, Martin Luther King being in Birmingham? I remember a great deal about the civil rights era in Birmingham, Alabama, because it was a profound impact on my life, on my upbringing, on how I viewed the world to be growing up in, in a town that was called Birmingham. This was our reputation all over the country and well-deserved. Um, I couldn't wait to get out of Birmingham. I couldn't wait to leave Alabama. What'd your father do? He was, he built highways for the, the state of Alabama. Did he work for construction companies or for the state? For the state. Did he get a pension? Yes. So you never had to worry about food. Right. Yeah, we were not. It, my mother in particular grew up in serious poverty. Her father was a coal miner. Um, my father's family uh, were subsistence farmers, basically. Um, and so they, they both grew up, spent a good bit of their, their youth and childhood in rural Alabama during the Depression. And so that was a whole different world. So when they moved to Birmingham and he had a solid, steady job working for the state of Alabama, uh, they were middle class. Might have been lower middle class, but they were middle class and it looked like, uh, it looked like a whole different, wonderful world to, to them. Where did you go to church? We did not go to church as a family when I was a kid. We spent, I, I would go to church with my grandparents uh, when I was visiting with them, my father's parents in um, Blunt County, which is where Aniana was, where I was born. Um, small church, tiny church with, you know, little, two tiny little classrooms behind the sanctuary. It was all Southern Baptist in those days, it seemed like, in Birmingham, in Alabama. Uh, the Southern Baptists were extremely influential in every area of the state at that time. And, um, you know, everything was very conservative and um, never any more so than when you were in a church. Um, I spent a lot of time in a little church called Liberty Hill Baptist Church that was about an eighth of a mile, quarter of a mile from the old family house that was on my mother's side of the family that was built in 1812. Still there? Um, sadly, it burned down in the 90s. Uh. I know, it just killed me. Um, I spent a lot of time there at that, at that house and um, going to all-day singings and dinner on the grounds at that church, and I thought that was the best thing in the world. I wanted to, I wanted to grow up and be a bass singer in a gospel quartet. <laughs> and I, I never did that. But today, I sing tenor 
in our gospel choir here at Caldwell Presbyterian Church. Congratulations. And it's the, one of the great delights of my life right now. A hymn that you would like to be sung at your funeral. Oh, gosh. You know, I think about that a lot, and I don't really have an answer because sometimes I think it's this one, and sometimes I think it's that one. Well, I love when we sing Rough Side of the Mountain. We sing a lot of old black gospel songs. I don't songs. know that one. It's a hell of a song, um, and, it, it, you know, it, it's... Um, I'm, he I'm heading up the rough side of the mountain, and um, I'm, I'm doing my best to make it in. And it's just a strong song. When you, when you sing with a, a gospel choir that has its roots in black gospel music, you take those songs that, uh, that express all of the, the hurt, the challenge, the fights, the battles of life, and they really, they really cut right to the core. And so I love singing in that choir with, with those people. Um, and very often it's hard to get through some of those songs without tearing up, without choking up, without wanting to cry. Um, because you know they were, those songs are grounded in, um, in a pain that for, for many people only God and faith could heal. And God and faith were not sources of healing for me for most of my life. Um, how did the people in your church, like in Albany, Georgia, Martin Luther King was in Albany, Georgia before he was in Alabama, mm -hmm. uh, in my hometown. And I never knew, because of my age, um, only a little bit younger than you, I didn't even know he was there. Right. Because I was born in 59 mm -hmm. until I went away to college. Mm -hmm. So how did you learn sort of what the civil rights movement was about when you're in the middle of it? You're the you're kind of the bad guys. That's a that's a great question. And um, I think one of the things that happened for me that was a, a great gift, as it turned out, was that for, for reasons I can't quite understand, I, I knew from a very early age that my father was not on the right side of many things. So when it became clear to me that he was, he was a racist, then I knew from that 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 was the wrong side of things. And so I, everything that I heard about uh, the civil rights movement, I knew where the good guys were, and I knew where the not-so-good guys were. Now, when people use that word racist, mm -hmm. the interesting thing to me is I grew up around what I describe as genteel racists. Um, they were embarrassed by people who were lighting crosses on fire and putting on pointy head hoods and they were embarrassed by that mm -hmm. um but by god there weren't going to be any black people coming to our church <laughs> right sure of course um so your father was not bombing churches my father was not bombing churches um uh, 
he was teaching his four-year-old daughter to use the N-word, which I think is a pretty strong statement of the kind of man he was. Um, and so, and I remember that day very, very distinctly. Um, we were sitting in, in, the, in a car at the curb uh, in, in downtown Birmingham while my mother ran in to drop off a check at the insurance company. And it, it came up and he told me that this is language I should be using. I was four. And what I remember is, is getting a sick feeling in the pit of my stomach and thinking, that doesn't sound right to me. Because I never heard people say that word. So I didn't know because of that, but I knew because he was quietly telling me to do something that he would not have said in front of anybody else. If your mother had heard that, would she have? If she had heard that, she probably would have said nothing. Um, because she was a uh, don't rock the boat kind of person, which a lot of women were in those days. I think a lot of women still are in, in these days. I think a lot of women in the South do what their men tell them to do or encourage them to do. And, that's, um, and so that was the case with her. So she wouldn't have said anything, but she never would have used that language herself. She never used that language. Um, so that's, that's, that was my starting point for defining my father as, as a racist, but also for defining him as a person who was teaching me what not to do with his actions. Um, did you ever see civil rights marches? Um, only on the news. Only on the news. It was in, it was in our paper every day. What, but, you know, one of the... I started life loving the newspaper. We were it, Birmingham was a blue collar town, and we um, so the paper was an afternoon paper. And I got when I got home from school, I couldn't wait for the guy to throw the paper in the front yard. I ran out and got it and came in the house and read the paper before anybody else in the family saw it. What's your favorite section? Um, I I loved the. The front page in the the a, the a section, the front section of the paper, where there was all the news about everything that was important that was going on in the world. I also loved reading about entertainment. I fell in love with movie reviews and book reviews, and and I and I think I decided that I wanted to be that. I wanted to do that. I wanted to write those kinds of things, and and I ended up doing that. Um, so uh, my exposure to what was happening in the city where I lived was came to me via the newspaper. Did you have teachers who were encouraging? Yes, I did. I did. Is there anyone you want to give a shout out to? I do. Uh, she's not with us anymore. Her name was Evelyn Relf, and she was my eighth grade English teacher, and uh, she taught me how to diagram sentences that were, that were long enough they would cover this wall here. Amen. Amen. And, um, but she told me one day, hmm, 
I had written an essay about something, and I'd seriously doubt if it was anything of any significance. But she told me, I was in the eighth grade, so I was 13, and she called me aside that afternoon and said, you can be a writer when you grow up, if you want to be. And, um, you know, I'll never forget that. I will be forever grateful to her. And she encouraged me the rest of her life. Um, you know, I, I, when she would fly through Charlotte, I would run out to the airport if she had a layover and we would visit. And I'm good friends with her daughter, who's about my age, I suppose, on Facebook right now. And um, she's very excited about the book that I've written. Um, and I've and her mother is mentioned in the book. And her mother is, um, she's just somebody that I will never forget. She changed my life. And that's what a good teacher should always do is, is be prepared in whatever way to change somebody's life. What a gift. What a gift. Encouragement. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you also have to have enough of a sense of yourself to be able to accept when someone says that. I think that's true, and I don't, I'm not sure why I did at that point. Um, except that by that point in my life, I had been writing for a long time. Um, I started writing poetry in the second grade. I wrote a novel, we're using the air quotes here, uh, a novel in the third grade that I would call my best friend, Pam, and read her every night. Bless her heart. She listened to it and pretended to enjoy it. So I don't know whether she did or not. I don't think she even remembers that, but but I do. And in by the sixth grade, I was taking um, steno pads and writing novels. And when I would finish a, a, a steno pad with you know several chapters in it, you know this friend wanted to read it, and I passed it to her. And and so I had I had a book club following for my, my novels that I was writing by the sixth grade. So I already had that in my head, but, but there's a big leap between doing something like that as a child and thinking that you can somehow become Louisa May Alcott, which is what I heard when Mrs. Ralph said, you can be a writer if you want to be. And so, yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Makes me think about my English teachers. Yeah. But, uh, um, so, in middle school and high school, did you gravitate toward classes? Like, you didn't mind writing papers, or you didn't mind the writing assignment? Oh, no. Writing was fun. I could write all day, any time. Um, I... Um, don't make me go to... Don't make me do math or science, but I can write anything and and I did and I loved it. I I worked on the school paper and um the the yearbook um uh, the yearbook staff and things like that. Um but just don't don't ask me to do math. What's a a hack or a 
trick, really, <laughs> to get people to write who get all up in their heads and start criticizing themselves and mm. wad it up and throw it away. And <laughs> I used to teach um, fiction writing through continuing ed at CPCC and at Queens. And the, the thing, one of the things that I told the people who came to my class was that to remember that um, Ernest Hemingway always said the first draft of anything is shit. And not, not to let that deter them. The first draft is just to get it down. And then there's a whole other process that comes behind that that enables you to, to, to polish it and smooth it and, and fill it with the delightful things that you didn't think of the first time around when you were just desperate to get the story down. So I, I, I don't think that, um, you know, writing, writing is a process that includes many steps. And, I, and, um, and I'm, I'm seeing a lot of people today that, um, first of all, don't, don't really know how to use the, the language because they weren't necessarily, younger people were not necessarily taught grammar in the way that we were. They didn't diagram sentences that filled the, filled the wall. Um, they, they were not taught grammar. Uh, I, my stepdaughter, who's 40 now, um, by the time she was in, in junior high or middle school, whatever they called it then, um, I spoke with her journalism. She, had a, she was in a journalism class at that point, and I was speaking to the teacher one night at one of the parent-teacher things, and, and she said, oh, we're not, we're not allowed to teach them grammar. And so we just teach them to be creative. And so I see people now who are, I, I follow a lot of um, writing groups on Facebook and, and see people say things like, I've realized that commas are really not necessary anymore. <laughs> well, which just makes me want to come out of my chair, um, as you might imagine. Uh, I, I think commas are extremely important. To know that, that writing is a multi-step process and that the only way you get really good is to write and write and write some more. You know, I, I've written, I started writing fiction in, for, for real um, when I was around 30, I think. I don't remember exactly. But um, I decided I would try to write romance novels. It was the time when romance novels were, uh, when the romance industry was moving into the U.S. as opposed to being dominated by a publisher out of England. And so it was, it was changing the face of it. And I got a book in the mail when I was working at the paper in Gastonia called For Love or Money, How to Write a Romance Novel. I'm, so I reviewed books and movies and all kinds of things for, for newspapers. And so I thought, I'll just review this book. And I did, and I read it, and it told me what to do, and I started doing it. And um, so before it was over, I wrote 25-plus romance novels. And I saw it as a great apprenticeship for learning to write fiction, really learning to write fiction, aside from what you can call your eight-year-old friend and read uh, at, at, after bedtime. Um, and, I, and so I learned how to write fiction, and I learned how to write book-length work. You know, you, you work for a newspaper, and you're writing short stuff. You're, you, you know, you, you learn you've got, you know, 
eight inches on page 6a. So I learned to write books. And uh, for a good long time after that, I, um, I started working with people who wanted to write a memoir or a business book or something, but they knew they weren't a writer. And so they wanted somebody to do the writing part for them. And I, start, I, I was a ghostwriter for many, many years. Um, and I worked with some wonderful people who had some great stuff to say. And so I learned, I learned how to take some of those same fiction writing skills and apply them to writing nonfiction. And um, so at this point in my life, um, I've kind of blended all that together and have written a memoir of my own. Uh, right. Congratulations. So, yeah. Is this your first memoir? It is my first memoir of, of mine, yes. It is, um, and a, a lot of people, memoirs are popular with a lot of people today because we've, we've learned that, we've learned that your story is also my story in some way or another. If we dig deep enough, we have common ground, and, um, and I think that's a powerful, powerful thing. I, I probably learned that for the first time um, in in rooms where people were telling the stories of their addictions and things like that. And if you listened, if you listened, you might not be an alcoholic or a drug addict or whatever, but if you listened, you might hear part of your story there. Yeah, they say, listen for the similarities. Mm -hmm. um, right, yeah. The, don't, don't compare. Right, right, just listen. Relate. Relate, exactly. And I think that's, true for all of us if we just if we just sit down and listen we're going to see that we're that under the skin we're the same how long did it take you to write the memoir essentially it took me about a year and a half maybe but i was starting with material that i'd been playing with for a long time you know little snippets of of stuff from childhood or whatever that i would grab because i've been journaling since i was a kid I was taking things that I'd been writing for years, and I initially started writing a book about prayer, and that was ten or twelve years ago. And what do you mean by prayer? Uh, well, that's a whole book, so we're not going to talk about that much. No, what but do you mean? What? Well, that's a whole book. Um, that's what I'm saying. I, I I talk about the fact that at, at a certain point in my life, what well, do you pray out loud? Sometimes. Um, but not always. But I'll, but I'll tell I'll, t I'll tell you one thing. Okay. Which is that I, what I believe today is that every thought I have is a prayer. Every action I take in in how I interact with you and the world is a prayer. My life is a prayer, and I can formalize that by saying it out loud. I can formalize that by writing it down. Um, I can I can formalize that by, by sitting it quietly and meditating. Um, I can formalize that by um, paying attention to the world when I'm uh, walking or running. So from my standpoint today, prayer is, um, there's a phrase in the Bible to pray without ceasing. But if somebody drops a bowling ball on your toe, the <laughs> prayer's not going to sound too good. If the if somebody drops a bowling ball on my toe, I'm probably gonna say shit. 
<laughs> that's a prayer. And that's a prayer. It's an exclamation. It's a. It's. Mm, it's well, but it's. It might also be a prayer. I'm going to read. I'm going to read you something. I'm going to read you something. Okay. It, it, I'll, I'll try to keep it pretty quick. If I can see where it is exactly. Um, let's see. Okay, and so this is a chapter in my in my memoir, and the chapter is called Flatlining. And it was about a time in my life when I had been praying regularly, and then when Mike and I, ex-husband, when we split up, I I couldn't pray anymore. I was done. I was done. I was over it. Um, and so I, I said here, by the time Mike and I gave up on saving our damaged marriage, I had lost my prayer mojo. I couldn't pray. I could force out a word or two, then everything froze. No thoughts in my head, no longing in my heart, no words on my tongue. And that loss scared the crap out of me um, because I couldn't envision going back to the, to the me I had been before I learned a little bit about prayer. Um, so sometimes all I could do was sit with my flatlined spirit, emotionally empty and deep in despair. Mostly, I blamed God, screamed and raged and tossed out F-bombs in my kitchen, trying, I think, to either shock God out of his silence or provoke him to strike me dead right then and there. Side note, I do not recommend this. <laughs> A couple of years later, lightning did strike that house, knocking out all my appliances and all my electronics. It was many years after the F-bombs, and I honestly don't think the Divine Spirit resorts to revenge biblical testimony notwithstanding. But as a precautionary measure, I strongly recommend eliminating the F-bomb strategy. And, and then I talked just a little bit about, um, then I discovered some hymns for the bitter, the despairing, and the lost. Those hymns sounded like Texas blues. Whiskey-soaked, rough-edged, cynical songs sung by a woman who sounded like she wouldn't shy away from cussing out God in her kitchen either. I burned a CD and sang those songs as loudly as possible on the way to the grocery store. I mopped to them, cooked to them, folded laundry to them, washed them down with a glass of wine. They were done me wrong, take me back, never gonna love again songs. They bled and they wailed and they raged. Um, and so I learned from that, that that when I couldn't pray, I could sing, and singing became the prayers that launched the process of restoring me. Um, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter if I'm singing psalms of praise or lamentation, Willie Nelson or Bonnie Raitt or Leonard Cohen, it's all prayer. It all heals. And so I think there's many, many ways to look at prayer. And, and and it doesn't have to sound like what anybody else thinks is prayer. If it's working for you and if it's working for your connection with whatever the divine might be for you, then that's all that really matters. When you've had to make a decision, great or small, and you've asked for, you don't know, like the right mm -hmm. decision, mm -hmm. and you've asked for decision, can you name a time in which you got a very clear answer? <laughs> yes. Many when, times. When you were open to. Many, many times, actually. Okay, well, give me a good one. I'm going to give you a good one. Um, I, um, I'm going to say, say that's a good one, but I've got a better one in the book. But well, anyway, just I'm going to tell, tell you this don't one. Don't tell me the damn so, book. <laughs> so I was um, living in a condo in Plaza, in Plaza Midwood, 
loved it. My favorite place I've ever lived. I was on the third floor, had floor to ceiling windows, 20 foot high, looking out over trees. I called it my tree house. I loved that place. Um, but things shifted and I could no longer afford to live there. I had a, you know, had a mortgage on it and I couldn't afford it, just could not afford it. Um, and I didn't know what to do. And so when I went to bed one night, I said, okay, God, you know, this is just not working and I don't know what's going to work, but you're going to have to figure it out for me because I'm, I'm at the end of my rope with it. And the next morning I woke up and there's this little place where I'm not quite awake yet that I'm, I'm moving in that direction where sometimes I get incredible clarity. And I, I was in that place and I knew without a doubt that what I was supposed to do was move out and rent that place and find myself someplace to live that I could afford. Well, that was not the answer I wanted. And that's how I knew it was not from me. It was from whatever you want to call the, the, the source of divine energy out there. And um, that was not the answer I wanted, but I said, okay. And I got up and immediately, within 24 hours, um, I had, no, that's not right, within 48 hours, I had... Um, two offers to rent my place and I had found a place in in Plaza Midwood six blocks from where I was living because I loved that neighborhood it was a duplex it was old it was run down um, it was when you when you went into the basement where the, the washer and dryer were it was best not to look around because you didn't want to see whatever you might see down there. It was a, it was a hovel, but it was priced like a hovel. And so every, within 48 hours, it was all worked out. And that is not what I would have done. I would, my answer would have been, here's a wonderful shitload of money that I'm going to dump in your lap. That would have been a great solution. And that's not the solution that, um, that, my source sent to me, but it worked. But you were willing to do it. I was willing to do it. And whatever happened with that place? Um, I, I ended up moving back there a few years later. I got, I got, a, I got a job that paid good money um, and was able to do that job until I was able to re retire, which I did a few years ago. But, um, and I, so I moved back into it for a few years after I got that job and loved being there and um, was more than ready to let it go and move elsewhere when I was, when I reached retirement, so. Um, women read more than men. Mm -hmm. They buy more books than mm -hmm. men. Right. They buy books for men. Right. That the men then don't read. <laughs> um, why is that? I have no idea. Um, women must be smarter, more creative, more, uh, you know, more open to different thoughts and ideas. I don't know. I really don't believe that. I think, but, but clearly books have great appeal for women. I'll tell you this, though. Women will buy books by men or women, and men will mostly only buy books by men. Hmm. And that's one of the, that's a damn crime if I ever heard it but uh, what if they don't know if they don't know whether it's a book by a man or a woman mm -hmm. 
I don't see how that's possible because it's usually written right there on it. Not always. There's a long, rich history of well, that's people true. passing themselves off. That's true. That's true. If it's, if it's got a man's name on it, they will swallow that and buy it. Hmm. You know, and which is why you, you don't find a lot of men who write under women's pseudonyms, although I did have a friend who did that because um, he was writing romance novels. <clears throat> Why do you think it's easier for women to imagine the man's point of view than it is for a man to imagine the woman's point of view? You know, I think the, the sad truth is that men have dominated the world forever. Forever. Um, and so they, there's, they're, they're brought up with and maybe not so much in the last 40 years, but prior to that. They were, they're brought up with, a, with the idea that they are, they are smart, they are in control, they're powerful, they can make things happen and shake things up, and, um, and they, all of that was true, and that was their, their purpose in life, which I think is one of the things that makes this point in time that we are living in so challenging because that's being taken away from them. They're no longer the only ones in charge. They're no longer the only ones who are seen as smart. They're no longer the only ones who have power. So, um, but if I had to guess, that's, that's why. Why should they read what a woman has to say? Because they're a man. And I realize that that's not, thankfully, true 100% of the time, but, um, but it's rare. It's rare for men to develop a, a strong following for women who write books. Which you identify as a Christian, I gather. We're sitting in a church. <laughs> We're sitting in a church. I, I identify as someone who follows the teachings of Jesus. I think Christianity is, is one of many religions that if we dig beneath the surface, the, the core truths are the same. And I think Christianity is also a faith tradition that has been seriously hijacked for political purposes over the last 50 years. And I think Christianity has been dominated by half the population, half the, you know, men decided what went in the Bible and what didn't go in the Bible. Um, so I, I, I try, I don't, I, I don't, um, I don't really call myself a Christian, but, um, but I love my Christian community. It's a, it's a pretty unique, I think, Christian community because we're a very progressive church and we march for Martin Luther King and we march for gay pride and all, you know, we're, we're very active in all the, the things that I consider to be um, positive movements these days where we have an old education building that was full in the 1940s when we were a big um, 
you know, hefty church of a thousand members or whatever, and we are now in the process of turning that into uh, affordable housing. Wow. Um, it'll be open, we think, sometime later, late 24, we hope. So you're a member here, I am a Caldwell mem Memorial. I'm a member here. It's, it's Caldwell Presbyterian. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not Memorial. Not anymore, no. Okay, but Caldwell was a person. Caldwell was a person. Mm-hmm. Yes. Sally Caldwell was the daughter of um, some plantation owners. And when she died uh, in, the, in the early um, 20th century, she was the only one left, and she had never married and had no descendants and so forth. And so she had money that was made on the backs of enslaved people. And in fact, we acknowledge that and the fact that the land that we're sitting on was also stolen from the people who were here before us. We acknowledge that every every Sunday morning. It's it's in our bulletin and it's and we speak it from the pulpit every Sunday. What we are trying to do is find ways to turn this thing that we've inherited into something that creates uh, a positive impact in the community on those things that we think are important. So we're going to try to house some folks that don't have housing. And we, um, and my batch of cookies that I made from a creche place this morning went to hell and I don't, <laughs> have, and I don't have cookies to give to. So we, 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 we'd say we inherited money and we inherited land and we um, were able to turn that into an organization that we hope will benefit the community that we serve. My understanding was that um, Seagull Presbyterian closed, and it was a multiracial mm -hmm. church, mm -hmm. and there are damn few mm -hmm. that right. don't have more than a sprinkling. Right. Um, and that they folded into Caldwell, is that right? Or not exactly. Not exactly. A lot of people came over, but well, there is no more seagull. But that, but that's not. That's not right. That's not right, actually. I mean, and I won't go into a lot of detail. But there were people who left Seagull and came to Caldwell, and ultimately ended up um, using our space to have Bible study. Ah. At the time when. Caldwell was about ready to close its doors because it's it's you know it's thousand members in the 1940s and 50s were no longer around they they had about maybe two dozen people who were in their 80s and so they were ready to close the doors the the place was in disarray the, you know they, they couldn't afford to take care of the buildings and all that kind of stuff and um the Sunday that they announced to the that that was announced to the congregation, we've written the letter to Presbytery saying we're going to close the doors. That Sunday, they just happened to have two visitors who were among those who had left Siegel Avenue, and they said, mm, "Can can you give us a week?" <laughs> and. They said, well, sure. And so the next week, they came walking in the door with about a, a dozen people from old Seagull people. And 
so these two groups of people, these people who were gay and, and multiracial and this, these old 80-year-old white people came together and said, how do, how do we turn this into a church that can work for us? And they, they came together and, and created something that was pretty, pretty different. So yeah, we're- My understanding is you have a rockin' choir, is what I've heard, it's, I've heard really good things. We do, we do, we have a- There's a lot to be said for that. There is a lot to be said for that, and, and it was one of the things that, when I first walked through the doors to visit this church, um, it wasn't a big choir, and I and I actually wrote a blog about it at the time and referred to the 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 the, the little choir with the big sound, um, mm. and they could they and we still can we can blow the roof off of this place and and um, but I, that the music attracted me because I had been going to old gospel singings when I was a kid and some of the songs sounded similar to me. They sounded, they, you could tell, I could tell without being able to know what I was, what I really meant, that they came out of the same tradition. What is a way which is not heavy-handed or preachy in which um, women can lead in a place that is traditionally Christian? I don't think there's anything wrong with saying we are feminist or we are, you know, we believe that women have a strong, a strong right to teach the Word of God, if you want to put it that way. Um, one of the things that we, well, a couple of years ago, our senior pastor, who's um, John Clagern, um, who back in his youth was a reporter at The Observer, and then he worked with Hugh McCall for a while. His father was a, uh, an edi a newspaper editor, so he comes out of that background, but he's been a he, he, he's second career person uh, now. And a couple of years ago, he decided to stop using God as a he. He didn't say anything. He didn't tell anybody. He didn't tell anybody what he was doing. Now, and so, but he just started saying she. And nobody here even noticed because we already were so ingrained in thinking that we need to look outside the box of, of what religion had created. And so he did a whole year of that. And we loved it. And so we do it. Now, and we sing songs sometimes, and sometimes we sing he, and sometimes we sing she. and so, and so we we do that. We just do it. Um, you don't even ha I don't even think you need to make a big announcement about it. Although it seems to me, I was passing by here one morning, and the Westboro Baptist, the screamers <laughs> they, were yes. outside and screaming. Yes. And um, I don't go to church. I go to church basements. Um, you won't find me in the sanctuary on Sunday morning. I've tried. Believe me. But um, I found that profoundly upsetting. Um, how did the members react at being screamed at? And there were kids. Oh, yeah, I know, I know. And they were, they were horrible, horrible. The things they said to the kids was, were terrible. It's traumatizing. Um, it, it could be. Fortunately, our children know that they are in a safe place. They really know they're in a safe place. And so um, we did things like, we chose not to engage them. 
but we sit right on the sidewalk. We're, you know, sidewalk length width from the, the street. And so they have every right to be on our sidewalk. And so we did things like the, the choir went out and lined up coming down the, the front steps and in front of the protesters so that there was a pathway. And we sang. We sang songs like, they will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. They will know we are Christians by our love. And, um, and oh, I think it infuriated the protesters. Um, but they still come sometimes. Um, they still hate us. But we choose to ignore them because there's, there's nothing that we need to engage with with them. They are not here to, to try to reason with us. They're not here to engage us in a conversation about... And that was engaging them to go out and sing. Well, but we were singing face... They were behind us. And we were singing to, to, cre to create a safer pathway. But we don't have conversations with them. Oh, so the choir turned their backs mm -hmm. on the protesters mm -hmm. and sang to the children as they went in. Yes. To the children and to our, you know, we have a large uh, contingent of members who are um, members of the LGBTQ community. And, um, and so, yeah, we, we were doing the best we could to soften the ugliness that was behind us that's beautiful and um, you know they don't come as often as they used to um, for which we are grateful but when they come we just we just mostly ignore them I know a guy who left this church who I think is no no conservative probably with a capital C and a small C <laughs> and he said it was around the time of 2016 and he said when the pastor wore a pussy hat after the women's march that was it it was <laughs> I'm out of here um, do you lose some people um, we have lost a few that are are conservative and that's fine I mean they they need to find a, a church that that works for them if they you know we don't we're glad for them to be here if they want to be in this environment with us. Um, but they, but, but if they, but, but we all need to find a, a, a pathway to spirit that works for us. And, and I happen to think that more inclusive pathways work better, but, but that's just me. I believe that we live in a traumatized culture mm -hmm. and that a lot of politics is the reaction to that untreated wounds or shocks or mm -hmm. repeated shocks to the amygdala without any ability to recover what's a way to try to heal or recover so we're not all dealing from the screaming mm -hmm. part of our brain I, I wish I had a good answer for that. I really do. And, and I think, of course, there's individual healing and then there's healing of the whole shooting match of society. And, um, uh, and, and I think that, um, I think the, 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 
it sounds simplistic, but until we reach the place where we can really look at each other and say, we're the same, you know, to go back to that idea that we were talking about earlier, we are the same. We're human beings and things hurt us and we want, we want to be loved and we want to feel safe and we want to be able to get a milkshake when we want a milkshake and, and um, you know, we, we want to have a safe place to live um, and we would just want to feel worthy of love. We all want those same things. And um, until we get to the place where we can really get that deep in our guts and where we can get that um, as how we build our societies, how we structure our societies, then I don't know that we will heal. Um, and, and unfortunately, I don't think that comes easily because we think that in order to say, I'm another human being just like you and I deserve the same comforts and joys that you deserve, I, I have to somehow also believe that you deserve that. And we have way too many people who think that somehow they deserve a better level of life than I do or that the the people who are living out under the frickin' bridges deserve. Um, and, I, you know, I can't, we can't legislate that. We can't make, we, we need to legislate things people do because we have learned that they will not do the right things just because it's in their heart to do so. Um, I mean, when we when we abolished the uh, when we when we pitched out the the um, Voting Rights Act, when the Supreme Court said, "No, we don't need that voting rights stuff anymore because we're not a racist society anymore," well, then everything went to hell in a handbasket real fast. And so we we have society has to do some things to curb the inhumanity that humans are capable of. In our particular republic, um, that, that can mean um, preserving the right of the minority to speak without bending the entire nation around a very, very angry, even violent minority. We would hope so, but it's not working very well right now. Um, I don't think. What was your maiden name? Bates. Why did you keep Rorbachek? Because um, when I remarried, my... Rorbachek's a great name, by the way. Rorbachek's a fine name, although it's an odd name and all of that uh, kind of stuff. But, but it's memorable. But it's memorable and, 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 um, and it has a great history here in Charlotte. But um, uh, I just... I, for, Having, ch you know, if you've changed your name, you really, I, I didn't want to have to go through any of that again. It was just, and I had, I had a career. I'd been working, you know, I was, I was not a kid anymore, and so I just didn't see any point in changing my name. Um, 
this is how really super dumb I am. <laughs> um, you have a child, a grown-up. I have, uh, I have a stepdaughter. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was Mike. Mike? Mike's daughter. Oh, wonderful. Right. Yeah. And you get along with her famously, right? We get along well, yeah. And you get along famously with Mike. With absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Feel free not to answer this. Okay. <laughs> Why didn't you remarry Mike? I have no interest in being married to anybody ever again. I have no interest in living with anybody ever again. But the the point is that the marriage was um, very difficult for us both at a certain point. And um, we had been through, I mean, we had been through, you know, 10 years of, of healing and recovery before the divorce happened, uh, which was at the point at which I thought, well, now, wait a minute, wait a minute, I've been doing this God as we better. understand God thing, and why the heck did this not work? And so uh, that, that was the point, one of the point at which I couldn't pray anymore, and I was, you know, just pissed off. But um, you know, I don't. I don't. I can't. I don't speak for Mike, obviously. But um, I. I don't think he would want to get married again either. I, it just. You know, sometimes, if you've spent enough of your life, in a marriage or, whatever, it, you you can say, don't don't beep at me like that. That's my. <laughs> that was Jeff Jackson. Um, then. You, I have no. You I have name dropper. That's right. I have no need to be married again. I have no interest in being married again. I have no desire to prove one more time that I am ill-equipped to be in a relationship. So um, I think I'm doing the right thing for everybody involved. Well, I've witnessed you. You guys seem to be wonderful friends. We are. And like if he were going through something, he could turn to you. You could turn to him. Absolutely. You can, just fabulous. Mm-hmm. You're just, just, just like a walking testimony to the how great divorce can be. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's true. Yes. Yes. And some people need to. Um, do you ever think, or do you think there is or ever could be, the kind of collegiality there was at the Charlotte Observer nowadays? Or are we fragmented into a whole bunch of little three, three person, five person, ten person, twenty person operations? That's a that's a great question. I and grieve it. I, I grieve it. I'm, by the yeah, way. I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, when when Doug died, we had the memorial service here in this church, and John Cleggern, who came out of out of journalism as well, was speaking to a room full of observerites, of, of journalists, and, um, and, and it really became almost a memorial service for those golden years of journalism, which the, the, the 80s in, in Charlotte for the, the Observer and the folks working at the Observer, those were certainly golden years. Much wonderful stuff was happening in journalism all over the country. and. And things, not just in journalism, but in every part of our society, I think, have changed so much 
that I, I think we have to stop looking back and say, can we get back to that? We have to look forward and say, where can we find the, 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 the goodness and the truth and the, and the spirit of collegiality and, and cooperation and, and connection in this next stage of the world because we're not going to, I don't think we can, we're not going to back up. We're not going to, but we have to find a way to, to change the way we're doing things now so that we can feel our connection again. If we don't have connection with each other, I don't know that, that, I don't know that we're, I don't know that life is worth living if we don't have some of that, and I don't know how to get it back right now. Yeah. There are communities and powerful ones like yours. If we got struck by lightning today and the only thing that survived is this little piece of digital audio, what is your legacy? I, I, I think I would say. Um, Actually, I just sent Mike a text a little bit ago before before you got here saying, I think my legacy is secure because a mutual friend of ours, mine and yours, um, posted on Facebook today that um, I was a, a, a gifted writer and an all-round coolest shit woman. Woo! And I thought... By golly, then I have arrived. I'm, I am it. That's, that's <laughs> all. And, you know, so I, I just would say if, if anybody ever remembers that I spoke out for, um, for loving each other and for finding the joy in being together and, and, and living this life together from a place where we can see and feel and experience the joy no matter what is happening then if anybody ever remembers that I said something like that then then that's how much more legacy do you need than that God bless you thank you for making time oh thank you I've enjoyed this so much that's good Peg Robercheck you can ghostwrite my book anytime but I will give you credit I will give you credit she should be my writing coach that's wonderful I hope we can talk about religion spirituality all kinds of things, and the craft of writing. Despite being an English major, I never quite got it. Thanks, Peg. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins & Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. A huge shout out and thank you as we enter our fifth year to everyone who has supported manlistening.com in her words, the podcast, 
And now Voice Locket and voicelocket.com. Thank you, guys. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much.